So, Mark. Yes. We love the love. Indeed. And in 2020, I watched a lot of movies, and you watched a few movies, some of which featured love. That is true. I feel like a running theme for us for a while has been the fact that you didn't watch a lot of movies last year. It's true. It's almost like the pandemic affected my mental state. Who could have seen that happening? But as we've discussed frequently, reality TV was there for both of us. Ah, yes. The comforting arms of reality television. I feel like I jumped on a national bandwagon a decade late, but I'm enjoying it. Have you picked up any shows recently that you've been digging? Uh, we can't- Nick and I cannot stop watching The Real Housewives. Are you, like, on a particular city, or- I don't really know how this works. So we're doing- we're doing highlights, so we did seasons one and two of Beverly Hills, and then seasons three and seven of New York. Uh, we're just kind of touring around, but I think the Real Housewives are filling a gossip-sized hole in my life. As people are doing fewer things, I have fewer things to gossip about, so instead I'm living vicariously through even pettier stories than I have ever lived myself. That makes sense as, you know, I was going to ask you to, like, sell me on the appeal of these shows, and that works. Yeah, it's just, like, when was the last time you were able to just be like, oh my god, did you hear that this person did this thing to this other person? Well, I'm still interacting with teenagers every day, so yes. <laughs> you know, that's fair. I do not have that option. There was one day where I was in the office and I spent like a half an hour just gossiping and I rode that high for hours because it had been so long since I'd done that. And you know, I'm I'm happy that that was possible for you. Yes. Uh but yeah, that's the appeal of Real Housewives. Uh, the other reason I did not see a lot of movies is the uh, unavailability of AMC A-List, R.I.P., my true love. I but mean, that <laughs> as soon as you're ready, it's there for you. That is true. I am, you know, going to be returning to the theater soon, hopefully, and I will sign up immediately. I saw Chaos Walking in IMAX. <laughs> you continue to make choices. Look- I was vaccinated, I was going back to the movies, I said, what is showing in IMAX today? And the answer was Chaos Walking. It wasn't Kong vs. Godzilla. This was before Kong vs. Godzilla came out. Obviously, uh, yes. I saw that in IMAX as well. <laughs> what I really want to do is, uh, the AMC by my parents, right before the pandemic, finished building, like, the AMC version of 40X. But I was forced to choose between seeing Godzilla vs. Kong in IMAX or to see it where I felt every punch. And you chose the one where you didn't feel every punch? I did, which feels like a mistake. But uh, Mortal Kombat's about to open. I don't know if I could ever enjoy a 40X experience without someone there eating two bags of spaghetti. I cannot believe a person would do that because it just feels like a difficult way to eat spaghetti. <laughs> it's not just the bag of spaghetti. It's pulling out a second bag of spaghetti, which is what elevates it to pure art. I have, of course, brought a bag of ham to multiple movies. I miss the days in Singapore when they had just a mall food court outside of the movie theater, but inside the ticket area. So I would bring my Subway sandwich or yakitori and a cookie into the movie theater. That's great. And then it got nicer, so they replaced it with just a normal concession stand, and it was very upsetting. Yeah, that's a downgrade. Now, anyway, you've been watching a lot of reality TV. So yes. I don't really know what pool you're going to be drawing from for our awards this year. You know, we talk about the Best Picture nominees, but we're also going to do our own goofy 2020 awards. Um, so I'm excited to find out. I have some awards I'm fairly proud of. Okay, great. So we always start off 
with our award for the best romance that wasn't nominated, which in my mind is named for eighth grade because that's the movie that we both gave it to that one year. I agree because that is also a very quintessential example of a movie that failed to secure a deserved nomination. Yeah, at least in screenplay. I know, seriously. So, Mark, what's your pick for the best romance that wasn't nominated? So, I think it won't come as a surprise, but my favorite romance of the year that wasn't nominated was Palm Springs. I suspected that's where you'd wind up. Yes, the two of them in their time loop shenanigans really struck a chord with me because many of the things they did are things I would want to do if I was in a time loop. Yeah. Such as dancing and then flipping off a biker bar. I was so sure that this thing had gotten a nomination in somewhere for like screenplay or something that it wasn't on my original list. And then I was double checking my ideas against the Oscar nominations. And I couldn't believe this showed up nowhere. Yeah, I feel like it hasn't been in the conversation at all. I mean, it has been in some of the precursor stuff. It was nominated at the Golden Globes for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy. And Andy Samberg was nominated. I think that this is one of those movies that if the Oscars had stuck to the traditional calendar, probably would have been in there in a couple of categories. But when they made the decision in like August to extend the Oscar season to include January and February, some of these movies that weren't quite ready or that were being pushed to the next year were able to get in under the wire and some of those earlier movies that we had been excited about like maybe it'll be a weird Oscars and like Ben Affleck will be nominated for the way back a lot of those weirder things didn't really happen yeah I feel like this year's Oscars is fairly normal in comparison to what everyone was expecting yeah and not bad I mean the nominations list is pretty good I have strong feelings about the documentary category but for the most part, it's a good list. I'm very excited about Burroughs' nomination for Best Animated Short. Yes, we have raved about that on here before. But I am also kind of surprised that Palm Springs didn't get anything, and I'm very upset about it, and I do think that it was my favorite romance of the year that was not nominated. It was mine as well, but I figured that you would probably pick it. We, of course, did an episode on it upon its release back in July. So I wanted to give a shout-out to Lover's Rock which is one of the movies as part of Steve McQueen's small axe cycle on Amazon. This is a thing that didn't get nominated because the big awards season debate has been, is this movies or is it TV? Because Amazon has been unclear. It is kind of packaged as both, but it's, it's really five movies that share some common themes. And they're about the experience of Britain's West Indian community from the 1960s through like the 1980s and 90s. And Lover's Rock is a very cool one. It's all set on the night of this party, like a big house party. And there's not a ton of dialogue in part because it's hard to hear a lot of it over the noise of the party. But there are these great moments. There's one particular sequence that everyone who sees the movie talks about where the whole house is singing along with one another. And the song ends and they just keep it going. And it's incredibly compelling. It ends with the romantic leads biking through London together, which of course is especially going to appeal to me with my love of biking. It's a really lovely movie. It is also like 70 minutes. So you've got time for it. It's shorter than several Game of Thrones episodes. And it's just a really lovely snapshot of a night kind of movie. That sounds that sounds really good. It's awesome. You should definitely watch it as soon as possible. But is it TV? I think it is movies. <laughs> you think it is movies? I think it is movies. Um, that said, I think it is five movies. Like, the Los Angeles film critics gave all of Small Axe Best Picture, which I think is crap, because it is not one movie, it is five movies. Are they each about 70 minutes long? They vary in length. Um, the first one, uh, which is Mangrove, 
And it's about a trial in the UK in the 1960s. Actually, there's a lot of similarities to the trial of the Chicago 7. That one is like a full two hours. But the other ones are all in like the 60 to 80 minute range. I was meaning to watch that one. It just didn't fall into place. And I spent much of this year angry at Amazon. <laughs> sure. That is entirely <laughs> Which did not fair. help. <laughs> all right. So with that award, I believe it is time to move on to the main event. Hey! Welcome. To We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This, of course, is an investigative podcast committed to examining the most pressing, urgent issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or if it's a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at what are allegedly, according to the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the eight best movies of the year, which may or may not, also contain the eight best romances of the year. I believe that is debatable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of these are not all that romantic, for starters. Are any of them that romantic? Um, I mean, romantic is a tricky word. Like, I think that, like, there is substantial interesting romance in Promising Young Woman, Minari, and Judas and the Black Messiah. You can make a case for Nomadland. The other ones give you very little. <laughs> There are things to talk about, but there is no movie that's truly centered around a romance in this year. Yeah, Such as A A Star is Born. Sure, there's nothing on that level. But yeah, we'll have some good stuff to talk about. Oh, for sure. It's a good slate of Best Picture nominees. Like, there's not a bad one in the bunch. That is honestly a surprise, because there were a lot of dud movies this year, and a lot of dud movies like to get nominated for Oscars. Yeah, I do think we would have a very different list if, like, it were not the pandemic year, just in that, like, we would have seen big things like West Side Story come out and some of those other movies that got kicked. You know, maybe Dune. Who knows how that's going to turn out? Dune. Dune. Do you see the new Dune trailer? I did not. I didn't even see that there was one. There was one over the summer and there was one, like, two weeks ago. Wow, I missed that. I need you got to watch some Dune. Yeah, I got to find it. Oh, Dune. So we should probably just keep rolling because... We've uh, got eight movies to work through, and I don't want this episode to be too, too long. Yes. It will be rapid fire. We are just doing the romance. Right. As always, we're not going to go deep on any of these movies. We're just talking about their romances. Obviously, this does involve some plot spoilers for all of the eight Best Picture nominees. Although, really, I don't know how spoiled you're going to be on any of these. Because... (laughs) With with the romances, honestly, I don't think we're going to spoil any of them. Like, I don't think we get it that much out of Promising Young Woman that you don't get from the trailer. And, like, I guess you'll technically get the end of Sound of Metal, but that's not really the point of the movie. There's also just not a lot to spoil about some of these. Yeah, the the premise is the deal. Also, some of these are historical movies where the spoiler is it has happened. And then I feel like some of these movies are not even that spoilable. Like, Nomadland, what is there to spoil? Whether or not she ends up with David Strathairn. Yeah, I guess, but also I did not care about that. Uh, you're not a Strathaniac? Is that a real thing? <laughs> I started seeing it on Twitter in the fall when Nomadland was hitting the virtual festivals, and I loved it, and it is now the only thing in my Twitter bio. That's not true, but it probably should be. All right, so I guess we should explain our believability scale. Every week, normally, we rate a movie's believability romantically on a scale of one to ten and so this week we will be rating all eight of these films on that scale i have only seen four of them so most of the ratings will be done by william hey this is an improvement over last year when i think you had seen three out of nine 
Yeah, probably. The year before, I'd seen almost all of them. Yeah, that was the year that we both saw everything but Bohemian Rhapsody. Right, where we both actively chose not to instead of just not making it to it. Yeah, I stand by it. Yep, that was the correct choice. All right, so we're going to work through some of these romances. Before we do, let's do one more award. Last year, we identified this as the Jellicle Award for Best Cat in a 2019 Movie, but... I was looking at my list over and over again, and I could only remember one cat in a 2020 movie. I could also only remember one cat, so I just gave it the award. Oh, you did? Yeah, we changed it this year to best animal in a 2020 movie, but why don't you go ahead and keep the tradition alive? I knew you would pick probably another animal, so I figured we should throw a cat in the ring, and I was thinking about the super fat, super lazy cat from Soul. It's a good cat. I love a chubby little cat. (laughs) It's a very good cat. It's unfortunate what happens in some regards in that movie with relations to the cat. Uh, doesn't the cat die? No, I don't think so. Okay, I just have an image in my head of the cat on that, like, escalator thing. I think there might be a cat on that escalator thing. I don't know if it's this cat. Are there two cats in Seoul? There, Do we have well, our there, two cats? There might be a cat's soul in Seoul, but I did really enjoy that cat. Yeah, it's a good cat. So I had two thoughts. One I want to award because it is correct. The other one I just want to acknowledge because I don't think this is the best animal in a 2020 movie, but I do think it was working hard in a 2020 movie. And that is the dragon from Doolittle. Because that dragon had to shove an oversized set of bagpipes up its butt so that Robert Downey Jr. could give it an enema and withdraw those bagpipes from its butt so that then the dragon would be happy. And I just think that's the kind of like hard work that needs to be recognized on the part of a performer. It's not like the best performance. It's like the Leo Award for The Revenant where you're like, maybe it's not your best work, but we recognize that you nearly killed yourself for it. Like that dragon shoved those bagpipes all the way up. It is a performance at least deserving of a nomination. Exactly. My winner obviously is the cow from First Cow. I mean, it's a good cow. It's our number one cow. How are you going to make oily cakes without that cow? I feel like there's not a lot of room to contest that in any way. I mean, I guess there's not a cow in the new Shaun the Sheep movie. It's mostly sheep. Farmageddon. Yeah. I can't believe they're churning out these Shaun the Sheep movies. How many have there been at this point? Just two. The big thing with them is that there's a TV show. Okay. I could have sworn there were more Shaun the Sheep movies. I don't think so. That or this trailer has been on so long that I've thought like three different movies came out. (laughs) I mean, that's the story of 2020 in film. It's that you just keep seeing the same trailer over and over again, bouncing backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Hop, 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 hop. Look, it's Peter Rabbit 2 The Runaway. Yeah, apparently there's only two. I have only seen the second one because I decided I would watch it since I'd seen all the other animated feature nominees for this year. I love Wallace and Gromit, but I think I saw part of this Shaun the Sheep show and I was just not as into it. This movie is the only thing of them that I had seen of Shaun the Sheep I had seen. I saw a bunch of Wallace and Gromit growing up. And I like I kind of got it, but I did not love the experience. And it was a pretty short movie for me to be feeling like it was long. <laughs> the Spirit of Christmas Award for fe- overstaying your welcome. Yeah, it was it was not my favorite. Especially because if we are going to do an animated movie connected to a TV show, the most recent Phineas and Ferb movie should have been in there because that thing was good. I have no affection for Phineas and Ferb. I've seen like two episodes, but one time it was like one o'clock in the morning. I was like, I feel like watching a movie. What's short? And I turned on the Phineas and Ferb movie, Candace Against the Universe. It was pretty fun. Phineas and Ferb is one of those really good Disney shows that honestly is worth the hype. It's on my personal Oscar ballot. 
in the animated feature category and the original song. Starts with a banger. I'm so glad that at least one Eurovision song made it into the best song. The original song category this year is a disaster. And it often is, like, that's the worst branch of the Oscars. But, like, yeah, we got Husevic in there. That's good. There should be at least one other Eurovision song. Yeah, yeah, Ding Dog should have been nominated for an Oscar. Or, like, Lion of Love rules. It actually, it is a movie full of bangers. Right. Um, Poverty Porn from the 40-year-old version is a really cool, like, different kind of nomination, but that movie was entirely shut out. As I said, I have the opening number of Phineas and Ferb movie. Edgar's Prayer from Barb and Star. But isn't that a 2021? No, because it was released in February. It's on this calendar. Oh, well, excuse me. Scratch all of my best awards. That movie is the top of my list for all of them. That's the thing. Barb and Star totally shut out. How dare they? Yeah. Like, it belongs... Uh, I've got it on... Produ- I'm, now I'm just, like, bragging about my weird spreadsheet. Like, production design, costume design, original song. I nominated Annie Mumolo. I might have to reevaluate one of my awards for real, though. That's fine. I also, like, if you want to save Barb and Star and use it next year, that's okay. Like, the calendar is funky Oscar-wise. I didn't remember exactly when it was released, so I wasn't sure if it had made the cutoff. Sure. Maybe I'll rewatch that tonight. I bought it. I have it on Blu-ray with me. An incredible life choice. I gotta do it. I'll get my tax refund soon and <laughs> spend it all on Barb and Star Blu-rays. <laughs> Not just one. No, because then they won't appreciate how much I love it. Also, like, if we buy enough Blu-rays, then they might be like, we should finance a second. I'm not entirely sure that it works like movies where pre-orders matter, but I did have that in mind when I pre-ordered it. Yeah. Anyway, right. should we talk about the romance of these Best Picture nominees? Yeah, I was about to say, let's get into some Oscar-nominated films. All right, so first off, we're going to talk about The Father, a movie that I can confirm exists. How much longer do you intend to hang around getting on everybody's tits? Who are you? Yes, you. I'd like to know your opinion. I mean, do you intend to go on ruining your daughter's life, or is it too much to hope you might behave reasonably in the foreseeable future? What are you talking about, Ed? About you, Anson. Huh? About you. A movie that I assumed would be very boring like The Wife, but it had Olivia Coleman, so I was intrigued. Please tell me more. First of all, not boring. I assumed it would be. I also thought it was like The Wife 2. Although, genuinely, and this is hilarious, there was a piece in Deadline, like, yesterday, as we're recording, that the guy who wrote and directed The Father, his next movie is called The Son. And I could not believe it. It's not a joke. Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern are starring in The Son from Florian Zeller. Oh my god. So anyway, The Father, it's written and directed by Florian Zeller based on his own stage play. And the basic premise of it is that the titular father, Anthony Hopkins, is an old man who is developing some kind of degenerative disorder. I think Alzheimer's, but they never say it. And his daughter, played by Olivia Coleman, has to come and take care of him at times. Which sounds like it could be kind of a boring movie. It is actually great. One, because one of the things I think Hopkins does so well is portray the way that this guy is working so hard to establish his competency. And sometimes that is, like, by getting frustrated and insisting that he knows what he's doing. But other times it's by, like, showing off, like, how lively he is. Like, basically, like, feigning youth to try to get people not to worry about him. He starts dancing at one point. Like, the movie is so much more alive than I expected it to be. The other really cool thing that's going on is it is from his perspective. So at times it becomes 
a little bit difficult to track a conversation or to track the sequence of events. It's not always entirely sure what order things happen in. And it's not done in a way that's outrageously confusing for an audience, but it's kind of disorienting in a way that matches this character. You're not always certain where you are. And it's really cleverly done. I think it's a, a very cool movie. Romance, though? So, Olivia Coleman is married. You can't talk too much about this in part because we're looking through Anthony Hopkins' perspective and he doesn't have the firmest grasp on things. In a number of scenes, she is married to Rufus Sewell, who we've talked about before. He's got resting evil face. He was the bad guy in A Knight's Tale and in The Holiday. And for a good chunk of this movie, I was like, oh, it's nice for Rufus Sewell that he gets to play just like a nice husband who cares about his wife. Like, that that's pretty cool for him. Except then sometimes he gets really, really mad at Anthony Hopkins and punches him in the face at one point. So Rufus Sewell is still doing what he's hired to do. Oh, poor baby. I, you know, I was so excited for him. He is doing a good job, though, as always. We're really seeing his frustration with the way that the father has sort of taken over their life and the struggles that they are having fitting their lives around his needs. And, like, that's really where his frustration comes from. Mm -hmm. Now, as far as the romance goes, it's confusing because at other times, we're told that Olivia Coleman is not married, that she's maybe moving to France because she's been dating a guy and he lives in France. The one thing I like is that every time her going to France or living in France comes up, Anthony Hopkins just responds, Paris, they don't even speak English there. And it is a joke that never gets old to me. So, Will, on our scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate the father? It's difficult to do, because I don't know how much of what I saw was a thing. Um, I'm not even getting into the parts where other performers play the characters, which is a reflection of Hopkins' disorientation. It's very cool. But so, like, sometimes instead of Olivia Coleman and Rufus Sewell, it's Olivia Williams and Mark Gaddis. Um, guess what? Mark Gaddis plays a kind of um, politely smarmy guy. What? You would never believe it. Whoa. Really playing against type there. No one is really being pushed outside of their usual category in this movie, but they're all doing a really good job with it. Hey, you hire what you know, in a way. I do think Hopkins is pretty incredible. Anyway, if I have to rate the romance of this on a 10-point scale... Again, it's hard to know exactly what's happening and what the sequence of it all is, but I am going to give it a 7. Because I think that... No, I'm going to give it a 6. I think Rufus Sewell's frustration is very real, but I sometimes have a hard time imagining all of the circumstances proceeding as they do. But the catch is, I don't know that they proceed exactly as they do, because I don't entirely know that what I saw was what really happened. You know, I think... Just try and do your best accepting the world as it's presented to you, because I guess that's our general principle. I'm going to give it a six, but I, my biggest thing is, like, people should watch The Father, a movie I did not expect to be enthusiastic about and really enjoyed. So for our next movie, Mark, you are going to talk to us about another movie that premiered at Sundance 2020 and then took a long time to get to us, Promising Young Woman. Hey. <clears throat> oh, you, hi. One coffee, hold the spit. <laughs> she spat at my coffee last time. I'm back because um, I think you gave me a, a fake number the other day. It doesn't sound like me. I know. So I spent a few hours composing a like very witty, very romantic text, and then I sent that text to an oil rig worker called Red. Was he into it? Surprisingly into it. It was like 
immediately inappropriate, but it's not gonna work out because of the oil rig. So I thought I'd try you again. So I would say this is the most spoilable of the bunch this year. So I think I will just try and focus more on just the romance. So as background, Carrie Mulligan plays Cassie, who every week goes out and feigns drunkenness to get a nice guy to take her home as a way basically to catch them in the act of sexual assault. Right. If you've seen the trailer for this movie, that stuff is highlighted. Right. But along the way, she rekindles a friendship which grows into more with a former med school classmate played by Bo Burnham. Just masterful casting, Bo is Burnham. six foot five, I learned. He's a tall guy. I don't think I realized he was that tall, though. I like imagining him on set directing all the, like, 12-year-olds in eighth grade. Yes. So he plays a pediatric surgeon who is intrigued by Cassie even after she spits in his coffee, uh, at which point it said, COVID. I mean, she spits in his coffee as they're making eye contact. Like, oh. it is not like she finds out later, I spit in your coffee. Oh, no, they are making eye contact. He says something dumb. So he says, you know, if you want, you can just spit in my coffee. So she does. And then he drinks it. And this is before they've gone on any dates. I like them just calling each other's bluffs. So then he asks her out, and they go out for, I believe, lunch at first. Yeah, they have a nice little, they have several nice little dates. And she wants them to move slow, so they are just moving slow. At one point, they are at a pharmacy, and he sings to Stars Are Blind by Paris Hilton, a song that exists. And then... While he is out one night and she is out, he catches her with Sam Richardson. You know, I watched this movie like back in December when it hit VOD and I forgot that Sam Richardson was one of the douchebags. More inspired casting. And so then he gets very upset. Obviously, they break up and then she goes to his work and apologizes. I think a big part of it prior to that is that one of the reasons they're going slowly is that she has so built her life around the ability to spend time visiting the fear of God upon these abusive men that you feel like she is trying to keep some emotional distance for herself from Bo Burnham so that she won't one day be disappointed by him. As well as emotional distance from everyone around her, including her parents played by Jennifer Coolidge and Mr. Krabs. So after they get back together, everything seems to be going well until if you don't want any spoilers, you should skip ahead here. Cassie sees a video of her best friend from med school being raped at a party and Bo Burnham is there not participating but not stopping it and as a result she basically blackmails him into giving her information that she wants and cuts off ties yeah and that's pretty much the end of that yes and we will not go any further this movie is like the the word that I always use to describe promising young woman is confident yes I don't think it's always successful but I think it is admirable in how confident it is in terms of narrative and style. I think it's also, it is now a $6 rental instead of $20. So I would definitely recommend seeking it out and watching it. It is something I've thought about a lot. Yeah, like it leaves me very excited to see what Emerald Fennell does next. The writer and director, this is her first movie. People might know her from 
TV, her association with Killing Eve, and she played Camilla on The Crown. And yeah, this is a movie with some really great performances, especially by Carey Mulligan. I think it doesn't always strike the difficult tonal balance that it's trying to make, but it is nonetheless a pretty fascinating exercise. And Jennifer Coolidge is playing completely against type for maybe the first time I've ever seen. <laughs> in a, a reversal from the father. <laughs> yes, in an anti-father. Um, all right, so uh, what are you thinking for a rating out of 10 for Promising Young Woman? I think that, and Nick made a really good point I knew it was coming based off of how the story was going, but I was still extremely disappointed when the Bo Burnham stuff comes out, which goes to show that it was really well done and I believed the romance. Yeah, you get invested in it. You are invested, and so I think- In part also because building that relationship with him is also helping her to rebuild other relationships in her life. She is sort of emerging into the world more than she has in a long time. Right, so you're really rooting for it because you want her to be, you want to see improvement in Cassie, but I still knew it was coming and still I was extremely upset. So I think that that is good evidence that it's a very believable romance. So I'm thinking, hmm, I'm leaning towards like an eight or a nine. I'm feeling eight. Yeah, I think an eight sounds good because there's definitely parts of it where Cassie does not, I mean, they move slow, but it's still kind of, I don't know how much I believe that Cassie would be this interested. We don't really see how fast they move, moving slow. I mean, I also think that goes both ways, where I'm not sure that he would necessarily put up with all of this stuff that he has asked to in the early stages of that relationship. Especially the spit in the coffee. Yeah, that would be a big problem for you. Unless that's also just, like, a thing he's into. (laughs) I mean, that would create its own weird circumstances, and I feel like it would come up again. Every time he gets a drink, he's like, will you spit in this for me? I just need a bit of that sweet, sweet saliva. Christmas and your birthday. Um, Yeah, that's that's gross, and I don't want to keep thinking about it. Yes, an eight. Let's move on. All right, so the next one of our special awards, Mark, I want to know, what is the movie that you saw in which the leads did not kiss but should have kissed. I am awarding this award to the film Nomadland because while there is a kiss, it is not the right kiss because Fern and Linda should have kissed. Okay, sure. The whole time I was watching, I was like, look at these two, Fern and Linda. I love their relationship. They're so fun. The David part, I was less invested in. I love David Strathairn. I know, but I still was just like, Linda was the only person I actually saw making Fern happy. Okay. So sure. I was just like, the whole time I was thinking, they should kiss. Um, I have two answers because my, like, most hardcore answer, I can't remember if they do kiss, but I would believe it. Which is Elizabeth Moss and Odessa Young in Shirley, which is the movie where Elizabeth Moss plays Shirley Jackson. Odessa Young plays a woman in a young couple that comes to live with Jackson and her husband. And the movie is basically like, what if Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf took months of them just in the same house, everybody manipulating one another and sort of slowly driving one another mad. And I would believe that these two characters kiss, and I don't remember. If they don't, that's the answer. They should. But just in case they do and I've forgotten, I'm going to say The Old Guard, the comic book adaptation on Netflix starring Charlize Theron and a whole bunch of other people as like not quite immortal warriors fighting through history. It's all set in the present, but they have fought through history. The movie is pretty darn cool, and everyone should be making out, because that's my general opinion with Immortals, is that at some point, 
everyone has made out with everyone, just for variety. You know, I buy it. And I think that the takeaway of this is, based off of this, more women should kiss other women in movies. And it specifically in the old guard, I want everyone to kiss everyone. Right. All right, so next up, Mark, I want you to talk about a movie that made your top five when we did that list at the end of 2020. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the romance of Mank. I love the old guy, Mank. Maybe I didn't always, back when he was my social security. I hope, if this gets made, you'll forgive me. And I hope, if it doesn't, you'll forgive me. I really enjoyed Mank. And I guess the central romances of Mank are between Mank and his wife, who I cannot remember. What? Poor Sarah. Poor Sarah. As well as the romance between Marion and uh, Hurst. Yes. And these are all based off of real romances, and poor Sarah's barely in the movie. Yeah, she barely appears on screen. She is Mank's wife, who is not with him while he is sequestered writing the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Or in the flashbacks very much, either. Right. We keep referring to her as poor Sarah, which is what he sarcastically refers to her as, and insists that everyone around him refer to her as as well. Yeah. Because Mank is obnoxious. (laughs) He is. And also, poor Sarah. Yeah, poor Sarah! Honest to God! It's very accurate. Her alcoholic husband who is never around? I know. And then Marion Davies, actress, is dating... I don't think they ever got married, because I think his first wife wouldn't give him a divorce, so Hurst is still married to his first wife, technically, and is dating Marion Davies, and that's just what happened in real life. So, Marion Davies, played by Amanda Seyfried, and William Randolph Hearst, played by Charles Dance, just sort of glowering from a chair. Another guy who's doing exactly what you hire him to do. But then there's Amanda Seyfried, who's giving an incredible performance. One of the best of the year. She is just alive there. She's so good in that movie. Yeah. All right, so... Yeah, there's not a ton for us to talk about with the romance. It's like, yeah, she is married to Hearst, and he's, like, producing movies for her to be in. And throwing parties at which she is this, like, incredible hostess. But still also is not old money, so she occasionally has fun. Right. And she would prefer that Citizen Kane not be made. (laughs) And I believe that as well. Yeah, but that kind of is all the romance we get, because this movie is not a romance. It is a movie about California politics and studio politics in the 1930s. Yes. So, on a scale of 1 to 10... Where would you rate this movie? This is one of those historical ones that we just give a 10 to, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Mank! Moving on. Good movie. Sound of Metal. Ruben, you hurt yourself? You hurt me. I'll hurt myself too. I'll hurt myself too. Promise. Say it, Ruby, or all of this is for shit. Say it. Promise. Go back there right now. Promise. Say it. I promise if you... No, say it. Promise. Promise. Go back to that place. I only if I, I need I need you to wait for me. Okay? You're it for me. You're my fucking heart. You're it for me. Okay? You gotta wait for me. Yeah, so Sound of Metal is a movie that was ultimately bought up and distributed by Amazon. It's funny because when you listen to its star Riz Ahmed talk about the movie, he was like, Yeah, I made this movie assuming no one would ever see it. Because it's an incredibly small feature directed by a first-time director Darius Martyr and 
I was kind of dreading it because for whatever reason, there is something about like movie about drummer that's not that compelling to me. Like it took me six years to watch Whiplash, even though I had the DVD. And like, I finally watched it in like February of 2020. And then later that year, I was like, wait, I have to watch another drumming movie now. (laughs) And so I was waiting for nominations because I was like, maybe it won't get nominated and I won't have to watch another drumming movie. The thing is, nobody told me Sound of Metal isn't a drumming movie. It's a deafness movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So Riz Ahmed plays a, like, hardcore, like, black metal, like, dark metal band. It's called Black Gammon, which is a bad name for their band. I like that touch. And it's just a two-person act. It's him and his girlfriend, Lou, who's played by Olivia Cook, who you and I saw together in Thoroughbreds a couple years ago. Great film. Yeah, great movie. Uh, She's also in Ready Player One, which is a less good movie. But he, as the movie is beginning, has been experiencing pretty severe hearing loss to the point that he can really barely hear anything that's going on. And so the movie abandons the drumming pretty early, and Ruben, the Rizamed character, spends most of the movie at a community of deaf people who are also addicts. So it's like an opportunity for him to not backslide, because he's been clean for a couple of years, but not backslide, and also learn to sign and integrate with a deaf community And what's interesting there is, like, his struggle is primarily about sort of figuring out to what extent he wants to belong to this deaf community. Because, in part because of his girlfriend, Lou, he still has this vision of, like, well, maybe I can get back to the life that I had before. And it's really actually a lovely movie. It is quiet in a lot of ways. You know, as much as I was expecting, like, a lot of noisy drum sequences, like Whiplash, it's a very sort of thoughtful, kind of peaceful movie, even as it is about the sort of intense emotions and frustrations that he's feeling. So as far as the romance goes, it's really just on the bookends of the movie, where he starts off with Lou. We have a really lovely montage of the two of them road tripping between gigs, just like talking about weird stories and like if they were cremated, where they would want their ashes to be. One of them, I think Ruben is like, well, you can have ashes made into tattoo ink now, which I did not know, but that thing has stuck in my head. Mark is shaking his head no like someone just spit in his coffee. Do not care for that. And she also then is the person who gets really more alarmed than Ruben when she learns about his hearing loss. When she realizes that he basically can't hear anything. He gets to the point where to have conversations, she has to write things down for him to read. He had been like hiding the fact that he was trying to go see doctors. She then takes over. She's the one who takes him to this clinic that's overseen by Paul Racy's character, Joe. And really, she's the one who pushes him to stay there. She's also why Ruben is working so hard to leave. He wants to get back to their life together and to, you know, Black Gammon being on tour together. And he eventually does leave and he goes to France where her previously sort of semi-estranged father lived. She's now been living with him in France for a while. And at the end of the movie, they reunite. And what's sort of fascinating about it is that, you know, we said we're spoiling all these movies. He leaves because in his pursuit to return to his previous life, he gets cochlear implant surgery. He wants to get back to music. He wants to get back to his previous life. And when he tries going back to the community, Paul Racy, who runs it, is like, you can't stay here now that you've had this surgery. Like, this is a community of people who are deaf, and that is how we're living our lives. You're no longer a part of this community. And so the last segment of the movie is Ruben in France with Lou trying to regain some semblance of normalcy now that he no longer fits in with the deaf community. But also the implant doesn't just restore his life. Like, he can't engage with music the way that he could before. He still is kind of at a remove from all of this. Hmm. That sounds really good. It's really lovely. But 
on a scale of 1 to 10, how believable is the romance? I mean, I think it's really believable. Like, I think that the fact that he hides this stuff from her is believable. I think that her horror when she realizes what's going on and when she becomes convinced that he's not going to do anything to solve it is believable. Yeah, I, I don't really have anything that I would knock this movie for. Like, I'm prepared to give Sound of Metal a 10. Wow. Big. Yeah. I think it's quite good, and I think the romance in particular is very well done. All right, Will. The next award. This is a new one that was proposed by you. This is a new one that I proposed to replace an award that I had zero candidates for. Will, it is very different than the last category, which we will get to, but what is the movie in which the leads should not have kissed? Okay, and just to clarify, because I have some different stuff, is this a movie where the leads did kiss but shouldn't have, or a movie where just, like, whether they did or not, they shouldn't have? I was thinking in terms of they kiss but shouldn't have, Great. but I am I'm curious what your other option is. I mean, the no matter what, like, it just wound up being, like, weird stuff where I was like, I don't know, like, My Spy is a movie that I want to shout out as being bad, but the leads are Dave Bautista and a little girl, so obviously they should not have kissed. Oh, well, yeah. No, I'm thinking more in terms of, like, a romance that was so bad you think they should not have kissed. Sure. Uh, honorable mention to Pool Boy Nightmare, which was a 2020 movie. <laughs> Damn it, that was my choice. Oh, no! I was gonna say, uh, you know, I picked a kiss that was so bad, it could be described as a nightmare. <laughs> now, wait, I do need to know which kiss you're thinking of. Are you thinking about when Adam kissed Gail, or when he kissed the daughter whose name I cannot pull out of my head right now? <laughs> I can't believe you got both of those names, honestly. Her name was Gail, spelled like a storm. G-A-L-E. <laughs> How could I forget? I mean, so the true nightmare was kicked off when Gail kissed Adam. That's true. But also the grosser one is Adam kissing the daughter. So probably that one. Yeah, I would say that's probably the one that definitely should not have. But I guess the daughter's not really the lead. Like, Gail is the lead. Correct. Okay. So, um, yeah, I thought a pool boy nightmare. I Look, you know, we're, we're just throwing out the junk. Like, I have complained about the secret dare to dream on this show several times. <laughs> I mean, we needed a category where we just throw out the bad movies. Right. Like, I thought that movie was going to be fun, and it was a little bit in how stupid it was. But you know what? Josh Lucas and Katie Holmes should not have kissed. It was weird. It was weird that Josh Lucas realized that he secretly knew Katie Holmes' tragically dead husband and had, like, developed some magic technology that was going to make her a millionaire now because, you know, it's the secret. So if you want it hard enough, you'll become rich and then you'll be able to save the local, like, shrimp restaurant where Katie Holmes worked. Dear God in heaven. The movie is pretty terrible. It is, like Sound of Metal, streaming on Amazon Prime Video. Oh, God. All right, Will, back to the good movies. Take us to Judas and the Black Messiah. You think you're going to be a bad mother? It was a question. Why you got to ask yourself that? I don't, I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm bringing a child into a war zone. These aren't considerations you have to make. You get to go out there talk about dying a revolutionary death and how your your body belonged to the revolution because you don't have another person growing inside your body. All right, Judas and the Black Messiah came out in 2021. It screened first at Sundance this year, and it is Shaka King's movie about the FBI spying on and manipulation of 
the Chicago Black Panthers, led by Fred Hampton, who in this movie is played by Daniel Kaluuya. The movie's lead, regardless of what the Oscars say, is Lakeith Stanfield, who plays William O'Neill, the young black man who is recruited by the FBI to infiltrate the Black Panthers and ultimately betray Fred Hampton. So he is the the Judas in the Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Mark, I don't know if you process this, but both Kaluuya and Stanfield are nominated in Supporting Actor. Wait, no, I didn't know they were both in Supporting Actor. Yes, they are. Who are they classifying as the lead? I mean, sometimes for a movie like, say, The Trial of the Chicago 7, they say... This is an ensemble movie everybody is supporting. And so, like, Sasha Baron Cohen is nominated for supporting actor for his performance in that movie. But Judas and the Black Messiah is not a big ensemble movie like that. It is either a two-lead movie, in which case both Kaluuya and Stanfield are the leads, or it's a one-lead movie, in which case Stanfield is the lead. Like, there's, like, a whole 30-minute segment in the middle where Kaluuya is not there because he's in prison. It's a very weird thing. Like, basically, the only way this could have reasonably happened is that Like, unlike the Emmys, you don't submit yourself for a category. So, like, voters get to vote for you wherever you want. So what probably happened is that one or both of these men got a bunch of people voting for them in both lead actor and supporting actor. But both of them got more votes in supporting actor than they did for lead. Because when you have votes for the same role in multiple categories, just whichever one you have the most in is what you get nominated for. Hmm. That's so weird. So they don't run people as lead or supporting? So, like, studios in their four-year consideration campaigns say, like, you should vote for this person for lead, you should vote for this person for supporting. And, like, Warner Brothers did say, Lakeith Stanfield for lead, Daniel Kaluuya for supporting. But the voters are free to do whatever they wanted, and what they did was weird and dumb. Yeah, that is very interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Huh. Gonna need to process that. So while you do that, there's not a whole lot of romance to talk about in here because it is really primarily about Lakeith Stanfield as this disaffected young black man who finds a certain degree of belonging, a certain degree of a home among the Chicago Black Panthers, but is constantly tempted by his attraction away from community and more towards like personal wealth and success, which for him is epitomized by Jesse Plemons as an FBI agent who is his handler and Plemons is frequently giving, giving him money, you know, paying him for his work, but also showing off nice restaurants and giving him nice alcohol and sort of tempting O'Neill with the promise of legitimacy and wealth and, and power, which is what he really wants. We're introduced to him at the beginning of the movie, pretending to be a law enforcement officer because he likes the power that it gives him. Okay. But will, (laughs) What is the romance of this movie? The romance is happening on the Kaluuya side of things, where Fred Hampton meets and falls in love with Deborah Johnson, who's played by Dominique Fishback. She's really good in the movie. She sort of becomes a really important part of Hampton's work trying to build the Rainbow Coalition, this alliance of countercultural movements in Chicago in the late 60s. And, you know, she's a member of the party, but she's also helping him with his speeches and with organizing the party. She really is a critical member of the organization. They also have some some very sweet sequences where they're falling in love and flirting with one another. And ultimately, she becomes pregnant. I believe it's been a little while since I saw it. I believe she learns this while he is in prison. And the two of them sort of continue working on the mission of the Chicago Black Panthers. They keep working at it. And then, of course, like what the movie's all about occurs towards the end, where based on information given to them by Lakeith Stanfield's character, by O'Neill... The FBI bust into the headquarters of the Chicago Black Panthers, guns blazing, and 
kill a number of the people there, including Fred Hampton, who is played by Daniel Kaluuya, who's in his early 30s. But it's worth acknowledging that the real-life Fred Hampton was 21 years old when he was murdered. Like, these guys were young. Mm -hmm. And William O'Neill was quite young as well. That, to me, is what's most striking about this story. It is actually the thing that I would most change about the movie. That I just think it looks so much different if you have a 21-year-old in that role, as opposed to 31 or 32-year-old Daniel Kaluuya. You just get a sense of, you know, this kind of thing is horrible and horrifying no matter what. But I'm just struck by how young they are. And that then Deborah Johnson, who survives the attack and gives birth, is also so young when she experiences that horrifying event. Hmm. I don't think I realized he was that young. That's crazy. Oh, my God. That's the thing. She's still alive. Their son, Fred Hampton Jr., is still alive and still active with the Black Panthers. It's a really horrifying story. The movie is really well done in that, like, it is appropriately horrifying, but it is also, like, pretty fun. Where the work that they're doing to organize everybody is pretty compelling, but also you're getting some of that, like, political thriller-style action going on as well. The filmmaking in particular is pretty cool, where it works really hard uh, with the camera to build some real intensity and motion as it's cutting through everything. Uh, Shaka King and Sean Bobbitt, who shot it, are doing some really fascinating work there. All right. On a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate Judas and the Black Messiah? I mean, I don't know. Like, it is another one of our real stories. I don't know enough about the true story of this to say if they, like, fudged the timeline or anything like that. So, you know, whatever. Real story. Give it a 10. <laughs> Classic Oscars, honestly. This is how these story. things go for us. Yeah. All right. But on the other hand, this movie is not quite a true story, although it's inspired by real events. Uh, tell us a little bit about Minari. So Minari is the story of a Korean family in the U.S. that moves from California to a farm, well, land out in Arkansas that the father is hoping to turn into a farm. Yeah, calling it a farm to begin with is generous. Yes. I want to point out that fashion has come full circle enough that I did not realize this movie was set in the 80s until they said Reagan was the president. <laughs> Because all of the clothes they wear are believable clothes that people would have on today. Yeah. And they're doing other things that very much fit with the time, like they're drinking water from the mountains. I love that so much. So this movie is about this family who are trying to build a new life out in California. They were working as chicken sexers, or chick sexers, and they still have those jobs in Arkansas, but the mom, Monica, wasn't fast enough for California, is what they keep saying. Where there are a lot more workers available. Right. And so they move to this trailer home in the middle of nowhere. I love the touch that when they arrive, there are no stairs. That was so good. And just watching every character figure out how they're going to climb into this trailer without stairs. It's so funny. So it's about this family. It is the father played by... Oh, God, what's the father's name? Steven Yoon. No, I mean the character. Oh, I have no idea. So the father's played by Steven Yoon, the mom, Monica, and their two children, David, played by Alan Kim. Alan the Kim! Child, the all-star of this award season. And his sister, Anne. Alan Kim is coming for Jacob Tremblay's throne fast. The parents often get into arguments about this move because 
David has a heart murmur and they're very far from a hospital. They don't have many friends because their English isn't great. So they can't communicate with the people in this small town that well. Right. There's not a large Korean community for them to interact with. And Monica is like, we're living in this shitty trailer that has no stairs. And so as part of the compromise, Monica's mother comes to live with them. Played by the legendary Korean actor Yu Jung Yoon. She's incredible. I love every moment she's on screen. She's the bomb. And she drinks pee. And she drinks pee. Speaking of, we just keep talking about people in these movies who drink horrible things. They drink coffee with spit in it. They drink pee. They drink Mountain Dew. They make David drink a medicinal drink that has deer antler in it. Oh, yeah. That he does not care for. Mank probably drinks some bad alcohol at some point. Probably. So the movie, I think a lot of it is really about the relationship between the parents. Yes. And the fights that they go through. They immigrated to the U.S. from Korea together pretty soon after getting married. And they talk about how it's affected their relationship. Even things like buying water becomes a hassle because the father uses all of their water on the crops so they're unable to get water for the home they have to haul it up from a creek yeah they're on a meter and it's tough to watch and at one point it looks like the relationship will end after the father pretty much chooses the farm over his family when monica is worried about David's access to a hospital, especially since her her mother has had a stroke and things are not going well. And Stephen Yoon's like, I'm going to stay here and take care of my land. And Monica's not happy about that. Yeah, the movie it reminded me of a lot was uh, Paul Dano's Wildlife from a couple years ago with Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. which is set in the 60s and is similarly about a guy who is sort of trying to claim a very particular type of American masculinity that he's not fitting into easily and the strain that that puts on his family and especially puts on the marriage. And I think what Minari does that's interesting is it adds the immigrant dimension and it adds the Korean dimension to that as well. And the movie ends with the grandmother accidentally starting a fire and the father chooses to save his wife instead of his crops from the fire. And apparently that's enough for her. I mean, again, it's the kind of thing of like, I don't think any of this is easy. And also, I think the isolation fits into it, too. Again, like, they really mm. are sort of out there alone. And I think yeah. a lot of these small moments are what build up and matter there. I really liked this movie. I did not care for the father. <laughs> he's very attractive. So yeah, he's Stephen Yoon. It took a lot of work for him. It took a lot of work for him to make me turn against him. But I personally feel no connection to land. So it's hard for me to sympathize with him, like, at all. Sure. And I, I get that it has more meaning to people, but still just, I was very annoyed by the end of the movie, especially after the stroke. Yeah, I do think it particularly represents, like, the land represents a particular kind of American dream that he keeps talking about. He keeps talking about, like, their place in America. Yeah, I just, I really appreciated the depiction of the couple, including how much they fight and how uncomfortable you feel hearing the fight from the perspective of the kids in this trailer where they can't hide from it at all. Um, I really love this movie. Yeah, it's very lovely. We've been talking about Steven Yeun. Uh, Hanya Ri plays the mother, Monica, and does an incredible job, especially as a more passive character, where you can see her thinking and feeling so much even when she is silent. She's so good in this. Yeah. 
on a scale of one to ten, I give this movie. Sometimes I feel that both of their stubbornness goes a little far. I just can't imagine being a person where after someone's mom who lives with you has a stroke and has trouble with communication and mobility, not accepting that you need to move to a place closer to a hospital. So to me, that like I just think it goes a little far. So I don't know if it's a full 10, but I think it's a 9. Yeah, I was a 9 as well. I think for a lot of the reasons you talked about, you know, especially thinking about like the ways that they come back together at times. Although one of the things that I do like about the ending of this movie in a way that reminds me a lot of uh, another big 2020 romance, The Nest with Carrie Coon and Jude Law is that after all of this marital strife, they end in the same place, but I don't know that they necessarily end together. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know that the next day everybody is going to get up again like it was before. Yeah, I think that the movie doesn't necessarily have to mean that they stay together. Yeah. All right. Our next award. An important one for our show, because we're always talking about movies for which this happens. So, Mark, what is the 2020 movie that most needs to be made into a musical? So there's a movie that one little change to the title brings it from Oscar winner to Tony winner. <laughs> and that is the film Mank! Exclamation point. Yes! On stage. <laughs> you go Look, from Mank, I love Mank with an exclamation point. You go from Mank to Mank! And you add some songs, some Irish drinking songs when he's getting drunk, a ballad sung by Mary and Davies imploring him to stop the release of Citizen Kane. I, I love Mank with an exclamation point. To me, I just have a hard time seeing Mank as a singer. Mank doesn't sing. Okay. Everyone else sings around him. Interesting. All right. There might be something there. Amanda Seyfried can play the role of Marion Davies still in the original Broadway cast. Oh, of course. I think it could be very interesting, mostly built around the idea of taking Bank, adding an exclamation point, and saying it's a musical. That's the thing. It's like, I think that is a, a, like a, a $1,000 idea. Like, yes, you got something there. And like, Mank not singing is interesting. If you could have like the Lily Collins character sort of more singing about some of the stuff that he's doing. Mm -hmm. That might work. My initial thought for this was Palm Springs, but we discussed why that should be made into a musical on our Palm Springs episode back in July. I still think that that is the 2020 movie that most should be made into a musical, but I thought I would leave that aside. So I do have two things that I want to nominate here. One is An American Pickle, which is an HBO Max original. It's based on a screenplay by Simon Rich, and it features Seth Rogen as a... Seth Rogen character in 2020, but also as his, like, great-great-grandfather Herschel, who was an immigrant from vague Eastern Europe and worked in a pickle factory and fell in a giant barrel of brine right as the factory was being shut down and was preserved in the brine until 2020 when he was discovered and brought out again. And so Seth Rogen plays both characters, the, like... Descendant who has no living family, and then the old early 20th century pickle maker. That sounds ridiculous. It is not a perfect movie, but it is pretty fun. There's a segment where Herschel learns about Twitter that's kind of boring, but the rest of it rules. How would you stage it with both characters being played by the same actor? I think I hire twins. Like, I, I thought about this. I can't figure out a way to have one guy play both characters, but I think the story itself is strong enough to work even if you don't do that. 
My other answer is Tenet. I want to see Tenet as a musical or maybe a ballet is better. You just think about like, there's that one moment in Hamilton where it rewinds and it's like pretty cool watching everyone do the moves backwards. And I think building on that for Tenet would be really cool. The reason I say maybe ballet is the move is because, look, Tenet is a movie I like a lot, but it doesn't totally make sense. And I don't know that turning the words into songs is going to make it work more. And it might just be like, use the story and the movement and sound and forget about any dialogue at all. I also think Barb and Star on stage. Well, yes, of course. Would be solid. All right. So uh, moving on with our Best Picture nominees. We've talked about it a little bit, but can you talk to us more at all about Nomadland? Hi, Fern. Hey. I I was at the gas station, and um, I think it's better if you don't drive through the park when it's dark for your cigarettes, so I got you these. What are they? Uh, Licorice sticks. I can't smoke liquor sticks. Well, I know, but uh, you can chew on these, and you know they they help or, or curb the urge. I'm not going to quit smoking, Dave. Yeah, I know, but you, you should try these. They're good for the digestion too. So, Nomadland was directed by Chloe Zhao and is about an American nomad, played by Frances McDormand. Yeah, it's based on a nonfiction book of the same name from a couple years ago. So she is someone who lives in her van, and it appears to be largely by choice, and she moves around, she takes temporary jobs. At one point, she works at an Amazon factory as a seasonal worker, which is a source of a lot of controversy surrounding the film. She goes to a nomad hangout, essentially, where they all live in their vans together for a few days. It's like a convention for people who live in vans. Right. And then she takes a couple other odd jobs. She works with Linda at the Amazon factory. And then Linda gets her job helping take care of this RV park, essentially. Yeah, she also like works at Badlands National Park and at like a burger place at one point. Right. And so it's all out in the West. Yeah, gorgeous shots of the American West throughout this movie. Oh, yes. And, and the a reason killer score. She- The reason she started on this path is because after her husband died, who was an employee at a gypsum mine in Nevada that closed down, she stays in the town, but eventually the gypsum mine closes and the whole town just disappears. And so she takes off on the road with nowhere to go, and then she just stays on the road. In terms of like the town disappearing, I was so struck by the point, this is what the text that the movie starts off with, that like the zip code was discontinued. Right, it's it's gone, and she goes back, and it's still there, but it's crazy. That scene where she's just walking through is pretty crazy. Yeah. In terms of romance, though, along the way, in her journeying, she meets Dave, as played by David Strathairn. Yeah, it's funny where, like, so Frances McDormand and David Strathairn are the only professional actors in this movie. Everyone else in the movie is a real-life nomad, a person who does this. And all of them are just using their real names. And then David Strathairn is Dave, so Francis McDormand is the only person with a fake name in this movie. That's really funny. Oh, Fern. A good name. Yeah. So they meet, I think, at the convention. It's been a little while since I've seen it. And they have a little bit of a flirtationship. And then she runs into him again at the Badlands National Park, where they talk and hang out more and he gets her a job at the same pharmacy that sells burgers i guess something like that where they work together they 
grow closer. I think they kiss at this point, but then his son comes to visit and says that his wife is having a baby and he wants Dave to come live at home with him. Yeah. I think it's notable that this relationship is never, like, super passionate, like, kissing a bunch, like, making out in vans. It is a lot more about, like, companionship in terms of Dave being like, I I want to spend time with you. And Fern Mm -hmm. being fairly reserved in terms of all of that. In part because she's responded to the death of her husband and the death of her town by refusing to put down any roots anywhere. Right. But... She decides to go visit Dave. Yes. Where they offer her to live with them in their guest house for a while. Yeah. And like Dave stays there. And basically the idea is like Dave likes her. Like if she wants to stay, she can stay. Right. And she thinks about it and they have a romance continuing. But then Fern can't settle down. So she leaves. And maybe they'll see each other again. And maybe they won't. Yeah. All right, so, Will, on a scale of 1 to 10, where would you rate Nomadland? I don't know. This is hard for me. Like, I think this is a a very cool movie. Like I said, it's got great shots of the American West. It is a movie that kind of leaves me asking, like, why wasn't this a documentary? You know, the number of real-life nomads who are all over in it, and their stories and their experiences seem really fascinating anytime they come up, that then... When I think about the McDormand stuff, I'm just like, well, I, you know, I don't want this this fictionalized thing. I want the real thing. And I don't know how much of my, that I got. Yeah, I really did enjoy this movie. Yeah, me too. It's kind of tough to rate this one because it's it never it's a romance, but it never really rises to the level of like relationship. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And because of that, it's honestly more believable. Yeah. It's just these sort of moments in time. And it is a mixture of convenience as well as attraction. It's just they're both there. Not a lot of other options. Yeah. So where do you want to rate this one? I don't know. I can't think of a reason not to give it a 10. This is going to be our highest rated best picture slate ever. I know. Well, there's so many just (laughs) real relationships and then very uncentered relationships. These are some AARP movies for grownups. You know, that is very true. This is a AARP movies for grown-ups slate, except for Promising Young Woman. Yeah. Although they gave best movie for grown-ups to the United States versus Billie Holiday, which I thought was kind of interesting. I really expected them to go for Nomadland. Yeah. That's kind of... I'm surprised that they didn't do that. Yeah. They did give director and screenwriter to the director and screenwriter of our last movie, which is a very AARP movies for grown-ups move. Ah, uh, yes. Speaking of, Will, why don't you take us to the last nominated film of We're the We're talking year. about Aaron Sorkin. We're talking about The Trial of the Chicago 7. Do you have contempt for your government? I'll tell you, Mr. Schultz, it's nothing compared to the contempt my government has for me. We've heard testimony from 27 witnesses under oath that say you hoped for a confrontation with the police, that your plans for the convention were designed specifically to draw the police into a confrontation. Well, if I'd known it was going to be the first wish of mine that came true, I would have aimed a lot higher. It's a yes or no question. When you came to Chicago, were you hoping for a confrontation with the police? This movie's good. Um, It's interesting to watch as someone who has watched a lot of Sorkin stuff because to me, this movie is Trump-era Sorkin 
wrestling with the idea of like maybe his institutionalism that he has championed for so long isn't enough. Like I think the movie doesn't totally get to that point, but it is very clearly wrestling with that idea. And I think it's impossible to watch this movie and the like West Wing episode where Toby makes fun of world trade protesters and not realize like, wow, this dude has changed a lot and is like no longer certain that the institutions will save us. That is a big shift from the American president. Right. Yeah. Which is what makes this movie kind of fascinating for me. And as somebody who like is very much an institutionalist in a lot of ways myself, like it was kind of fascinating to see this evolution and the way that he, you know, he can't quite bring himself to say like burn it down or anything like that. But he is presenting those more radical protesters in a much more sympathetic way than he ever has before. I'm intrigued now by this movie, just to, from that element as well as the other stuff. Yeah, it's also good and, like, a fun movie. You know, it's Aaron Sorkin writing a courtroom drama again. Like, you know you want that. You've seen A Few Good Men. This one is about the trial. It, it's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. I don't remember if I've said that. It's about the trial of the supposed organizers of the riots at the Democratic National Convention in 1969. Well, the riots were in 68. The trial's in 69. And the movie very much highlights this role as a political trial where the Johnson administration had decided not to bother. But after Nixon's crew and uh, Attorney General Mitchell come in, they decide that they are going to do this to make an example of the new left. And the movie really highlights the corruption that drives that. And at times, some of the people who stood up for these protesters, including a surprise entrance of a great actor, like halfway through the movie as a sort of like last minute helper which i will not spoil because it is delightful when he shows up i want to both look it up and leave it a surprise now you should leave it a surprise because it's great and he's also somebody who's never done sorkin before and is great at the dialogue all right well though is there any romance in this movie i have no idea there is almost no romance in this movie which it being a sorkin project has almost no women in it Like, the Sorkin exceptions when it comes to women. I mean, the TV shows always have women, but they have, like, their own Sorkin women issues. Like, the movie exceptions for women are, of course, the American president, which is a romance. Molly's game is about a woman. So he gets that one. And then the Kate Winslet character in Steve Jobs, who rules. Steve Jobs, great movie. Hmm. Anyway, the closest thing to romance in this movie is that Jeremy Strong, in an incredible performance, plays Jerry Rubin, one of the leaders of the Yippies. And he flirts with a woman in the new left. He thinks she's cute. They have a nice flirtationship. They're getting uh, increasingly romantic. But then it turns out that she is an undercover FBI agent who was there to infiltrate the protests, and she betrays him. And she testifies at the trial. Oh my god. All right, though, Will. Where would and that you is the romance that? of the trial of Chicago 7. And look, we already discussed Judas and the Black Messiah. I believe the FBI would do this in the 1960s. 10 out of 10 for the trial of Chicago 7. Oh, my God. I mean, wow. The one thing is, I don't know enough about Jerry Rubin to know if he would have fallen for this. So, eh, give it a 9. Fine. <laughs> Great. We did it. We did it. Last uh, award, Last Will. award, Mark. The most important. What is the least believable romance you saw in a 2020 movie? I enjoyed the movie, but I did not believe the romance between Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams in Eurovision. Yeah, that's correct. That's a good answer. Just, I believe Will Ferrell's character being in love with Rachel McAdams more than how it's the other way around. That said, like, 
The other way around is so much funnier than the alternative. Yeah, it's a movie. It does not matter that the romance is unbelievable. The movie is mostly about the songs. Let's be real. Look, I'm your lion of love, Mark. Yeah, yeah, ding dong. Uh, My answer is Happiest Season, the Hulu Christmas movie starring Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie Davis. And look, we had all this discourse on Twitter. They should not end up together. It is a pretty charming movie. I would say it is like substantially better than made for TV, but not on the level of like great Christmas romance. So it's occupying a happy middle ground and they should not end up together and everybody knows it. But Victor Garber is in the movie and he's married to Mary Steenburgen. So (laughs) there is that going for it and that ain't nothing. uh, Yeah, that is definitely not nothing. Will, if you had to date one person in one of these eight movies, who would you choose? Ooh. I forgot to prepare for this one. Um, Me too. I thought it was just like all movies. (laughs) I have my answer. I've decided. Okay. You know what? I have my answer too. Do you want to go first or should I? Why don't you go first? I want want to date Marion Davies. I was going to say Marion Davies. She's so fun. She's She's so so fun. Yeah. Seyfried is so good in that movie. She's like the most fun person in all of these movies. Yeah. She's great. Except maybe Laverne Cox as the cafe owner in Promising Young Woman. I forgot that happened. Yeah, that's a good choice, too. There are two fun people in these eight movies. (laughs) I mean, Anthony Hopkins is fun when he's dancing, but he's not fun when he gets angry or mean. People contain multitudes. Wow. Yeah, especially in The Father, when multitudes play people. (laughs) Wow. So deep, Will. All right, I think that's it for 2020. Anything la- anything else you want to shout out before we go? No, I think we've pretty much done it. Um, everyone should tune in next week when we are joined by our medical expert to talk about what happens when you get caught between the moon and New York City. Because when you're between the moon and the earth, you're in the space between us. Uh, we've already recorded the episode, but I might need you to edit me out. I'm done. No. We gotta find out what happens if you're born on Mars. Can you come to Earth? Oh, God. Until next week, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, or you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. Last question. What is the best piece of dating advice you got in a 2020 movie? Uh, You know, I'm going to pull my answer from the best romance that wasn't nominated. From Lover's Rock, I've learned that having a bike around can get you a great date. Well, what works in the hit film Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, accidentally take drugs and dance to a remix of Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. The best part is when you watch the same date day happen twice in a row. That is absolutely one of the best jokes of that entire movie oh what a great movie up there with just jennifer convertibles as a concept i'm probably gonna buy that movie tonight (laughs) it's so good uh until next time i'm gay and i'm a ginger so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance bye i'll be the king you wanted you'll be the queen i need and on